This is the East TraumaCast. Welcome to the next TraumaCast. Before we get started, we'd like to say thank you to Humanetics for their generous and unrestricted educational grant for the Online Education Committee and the TraumaCast. Today is a perfect day in Michigan for our topic. It's snowing, kind of icy, and simply a miserable winter day. Usually during snowstorms, I get comments throughout the hospital like, oh, I bet trauma's so busy. And it is, but, but not in the sense of a five-car pileup on the highway. Practically, most people actually drive reasonably slow when it's snowing. But on days like this, the trauma service gets very busy with geriatric trauma from slip and falls. So today is a perfectly snowy day to discuss our next topic, starting a geriatric trauma program. We're going to start with introductions. As we know at East, we use first names, but I'd like you to have a moment to introduce yourself, and we'll start with Ben Gayad. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. So Ben Gayad, I'm a acute care surgeon uh, working at Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids. Married, my wife and I have four kids. I completed my surgical training at Indiana University, and I also completed acute care surgery and surgical critical care fellowships, also completed at Indiana University. Uh, during my residency, I took two years of research time, and in that time, I studied systems engineering and business process improvement. And those have actually become pretty integral pieces to how I look at process building, how we look at this whole system and try to put it together and, and make it work a little bit better. Thank you. And Kathy, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, um, I appreciate you inviting me on this. So I am Kathy. I've been the nurse practitioner for geriatric trauma for a little over a year now. But to start out, I first got my degree in biomedical science and then went back and got my bachelor's of science in nursing and have experience in first working in oncology and then the intensive care unit, the emergency room, and then also working with trauma process improvement. And from there, I went and got my doctorate at Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids and focused on the adult, older adult population. I've been working within the hospital system for almost 18 years now, started as a nurse aide, nurse tech. That's when I worked with the acute care for the elderly unit, fell in love with geriatrics and extended up to my trauma world where I thought, oh, you can put geriatrics and trauma together and kind of fall in love. And that's where this whole involvement of the program developed. Well, thank you. And finally, I'd like to introduce Lauren Dudas. She is our next TraumaCast work group leader. And as I leave, she's our new lead moderator. Lauren, please remind everyone who you are and where you're from. So I'm Lauren Dudas. I'm currently a trauma and acute care surgeon at West Virginia University in Morgantown, West Virginia. And I'll tell you, I'm honestly humbled by all the experience you guys bring to the table and really excited to hear what you have to say. So first off, can you tell us about the makeup of your hospital? What's your trauma population? How, what percentage of it is geriatric trauma? Kathy and I both work at Spectrum Health Butterworth Hospital. It's a level one trauma center in Grand Rapids, uh, which interacts uh, with 3,000 trauma patients per year. If you're using 65 as a cutoff, uh, that's we have about 40% of those trauma activations are geriatrics. And if you're using 55 as a cutoff, then more than half of the patients that 
our trauma services interact with are geriatric patients. Uh, so in other words, if you looked at 65 years of age, we could have a, a level one trauma center just of geriatric trauma patients. We would have about 1,200 geriatric trauma patients per year. The hospital that we work in, it's the regional referral center for a 13-county footprint of West Michigan that covers most of the west side of the lower peninsula of the state. So what is geriatric? Uh, Kathy, do you want to field this one? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so geriatric to me, when we're just really looking at it on paper, is somebody who's 65 and older, if we really want to set it by an age limit. But I also don't want to exclude those who are younger, who have multiple comorbidities, but typically it's an age cutoff when we refer to geriatrics. It's an interesting question because when people publish data on geriatric anything, there's no standard age cutoff that people use. You'll see the cutoff goes low as 55 or as high as 85 in, in various studies. So there is no universal accepted cutoff for what encompasses geriatric care. When I was pregnant, I was 36 <laughs> and I had to go to the geriatric pregnancy clinic. So I think that geriatric might span a lot of decades. Did they really call it the geriatric pregnancy center? Yeah, the, actually, I think they called it the like the senile pregnancy clinic, or the <laughs> geriatric pregnancy clinic, or something. It was absurd. Oh, now, is five the age cutoff you guys have always used at your institution, or did that fluctuate based on evaluating your volumes? It was yeah, dependent we- on volumes. So slower times would extend that age criteria down to fifty-five with multiple comorbidities. And we actually set our program up. We set the data collection in our program to go down to 55 while we set the clinical process up to start at 65, which was just a reflection on the resources that we had available for both. We have a robust data collection team as part of our trauma process improvement uh, group that's already baked into the system. But Kathy is the first inpatient geriatrics presence that we have. So we have pretty limited capacity right now to cover large inpatient volumes. Can you tell us why have a geriatric program? Aren't we as trauma surgeons skilled at managing geriatric trauma? Uh, Well, we are. We certainly are. But pediatrics aren't little, you know, adults. Uh, Geriatrics, they're not really the same as older traumatized adults. The specific differences that we see are that the natural kind of physiologic changes of aging, as well as comorbidities, as well as prescription medication use, in addition to frailty, to whatever extent that's an independent thing from aging itself, they all change the geriatric patient's response to trauma. So what we specifically see is with the same injury severity, geriatric patients have a higher morbidity and mortality as younger patients. Um, But not only that, we also find that they are frequently under triaged. And we know that under triage in some studies has doubled mortality. Uh, So they're harder to diagnose and for the same diagnosis, they do worse. So in light of that, uh, you really uh, ought to have, or at least consider having a process for assessment and management of these patients that is unique to that population. Otherwise, they will certainly fall through the cracks in various ways if you don't treat them as a unique, particularly vulnerable population. Yeah, and I agree with that. I also think the time needed to spend with them to figure out the whole care, such as the social aspect is huge is really important. And that's why a geriatric service is really needed in looking at what their needs are, 
on day of admission, what discharge looks like, what their goals of care are, do they have a power of attorney, what is their code status, what is their wishes overall, and encompassing that within trauma and thinking about geriatrics too with the beers criteria is really, really important to take that time. What is the makeup of the geriatric trauma program? So currently right now, it's myself as a nurse practitioner that sees patients on a daily basis and I'm followed closely behind the scenes with a geriatrician who touches base and follows along with the patients along the way, gives them some solid education and input along the way on patient cases too. So at this point, that's the team working along with closely with the trauma team as well. Yeah, at our institution, the geriatric trauma specialty is housed under geriatrics. I know there are other programs where it's housed under trauma services primarily, and there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer there. But the nice thing about our setup is it allows Kathy to be a consultant. It allows her to be an expert. While we on the trauma service tend to really keep control of the patient, it puts her in a position of having to educate our team. And we have residents rotating through our service. So we have a lot of opportunities for process variation and for um, education on a regular basis. So it's particularly helpful for us to have it organized that way. Kathy, tell us as a the nurse practitioner who works in the geriatric program, like what is your day like? What do you do that might be in addition to what the normal trauma service would do? Yeah, and I think that's a great question. And I love sharing that information too. When I get, um, like I've had a PA student, I've had even a medicine resident follow me. And I get so excited because they walk away learning so much. And what I sit down and say, okay, I open this chart, but how you're going to look at it and how I'm going to look at it is very different. I'm looking at all their comorbidities. I'm looking at all their medications they're on. I'm calling um, patients, primary care providers, cardiologists. I'm digging for power of attorney paperwork. I'm talking to family members every single day. I'm in the room with the patients, assessing them thoroughly, socially, physically, all of those pieces from head to toe, and often in the room with them for 45 minutes to an hour. I'm with that time learning so much about them. And then also the huge, huge piece of it is truly a thorough medication review And I know we do have our pharmacy here that does that, and I collaborate with them as well. But really trying to understand what medications they are on, what could we minimize, what do they not need, and also what prescriptions are being prescribed along the way while they're inpatient, and also what they're going to be discharged with and what's appropriate. And so looking at it from that viewpoint is very different, I think, than some people that I have worked with that have followed me along the way. But it truly is doing a thorough chart review, seeing the patient, getting the information from them, getting the information from their providers, the family members, and really piecing that all together, along with understanding all of this, making sure they understand, yes, this is what we provided to you as your option of care. But these are also other options that are available to you. We want to make sure we're meeting your wishes. If it's somebody that is thinking about going to surgery, if they find out that they don't need to go to surgery, that doesn't have to be an option. We can do things a different way. I'm letting them know that. And it's been really surprising along the way. Once patients know their options, sometimes what they decide at the end too. When are you having these conversations with patients on the day of admission, or do you have a certain timeline you try to discuss all this with the patients and their families? I like to do it on day one and really um, develop a rapport with the patients and families. 
and continue that conversation throughout the stay. Cause I like to be really transparent on what their wishes are, but what we could see along the way. So there's no surprises or no frantic phone calls in the middle of the night of what's happening and them having to make a quick decision along the way. So making sure those conversations happened in the beginning. And then do you see them every day of their admission? Yes. If the volume allows the census, then yes, I do. I like to see them from day one. I love to get them down when they're in the emergency room and see them from there all the way through discharge if I can. But often see them um, day one when I come in and then through discharge, making sure there's a safe, solid discharge plan as well. And what kind of number can you really tolerate? I think for me, seven to nine patients a day is most ideal to give solid, good patient care, as long as there's not like six new patients all at once. I've been seeing some along the way already. Do you use any specific criteria for your admission disposition? We do for our rib fracture protocol, uh, because that's where we, based on the research that Kathy mentioned she had done for her doctorate work, uh, we figured out that our IC readmission rate was unacceptably high for this population. So our specific criteria are IS below 1,000 uh, or 15 mils per kilo, age over 65, a fracture of three or more ribs or segmental in two or more ribs, or a new oxygen requirement. We also look at rapid frail assessment. If you have uh, two or three of those things and or you are also frail, that is an automatic ICU admission which has become a bit of a byword uh, in our program. We have a hashtag rib watch for these patients that we will just park in the ICU for 72 hours and just watch them. And that does certainly seem like it's impacted. Our ICU readmission rates have gone down with that. Carrie actually might have more data than I do. He was part of the group that looked at some of the rib fracture protocols and the outcomes, because I think there was maybe a mortality benefit, but that might've been specific to the rib fixation and not the, uh, the rib fracture protocol itself. I can't remember that. Yeah, we're about to publish on our data for our rib fracture protocol and how it's helped everyone, but particularly geriatric patients. Do any other services admit any of your trauma patients, like orthopedics admitting, you know, an isolated hip fracture? And does the geriatric trauma service see those patients? The isolated hips are admitted to ortho, and then trauma service is the only service that consults geriatrics at this time. Mm just due to capacity right now, about half of our trauma admits are not currently admitted to the trauma service. So most of the, most of those, or I, I should say the highest number of patients that are not admitted to trauma services are the isolated hip fractures. Many of those go to the hospitalist service with um, obviously orthopedics or surgery uh, involved as well. Do you use any specific frailty screening that you could recommend people look into if they're considering starting a program? Yeah, I actually use two because um, the, the geriatric outpatient world uses a clinical frail score. And then the inpatient world here, especially with our rib fracture population, uses the F-R-A-I-L frail score. So I use both of those. Um, currently, they're pretty simple to use, and I'm so used to them that it, it doesn't take much time, so it's helpful. Have you been able to make protocols based on what you've already experienced to be beneficial so that if the volume does get high enough, the kind of the protocols can get carried out without the geriatrician consult. That has been difficult, I will say, because of COVID to try to move forward with any of those pieces. Yeah, I do think that through repetition and education, 
uh, those things have started to happen um, uh, automatically in some ways. For example, I know our current rib fracture protocol, we have a multimodal pain regimen that we use that includes gabapentin and robaxin. And we've started to look at um, robaxin uh, can tend to cause um, some uh, uh, confusion uh, and Xanaflex is the alternative, but that causes some hypotension. So we, um, we can, the teams already kind of start to know, well, if I have trouble with the one, I look at the other. And those were things that Kathy had to really tell us at first. And now we've started to kind of learn some of those things. Did I get that backwards, Kathy? Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's great. And yeah, it's been kind of becoming more of a habit within the teams now and they're passing it among each block. I see like oftentimes I like the 2.5, 5 oxy versus 5 and 10. And then all of a sudden you see that ordered. So it gets me so excited that I don't have yeah. to remind. Yeah, pain control ends up being a big thing that we talk about. This is another a good example of how a program can benefit you. You know, my on my rounds, I walk in, I see the patient. And let's say they have, again, rib fractures, because that's a pretty high uh, prevalence uh, issue in this population. Uh, so I work with their incentive spirometer. I see how they're doing. Um, I ask them how their pain is. They say, oh, it's, you know, it's fine. It's a zero or it's a two. And I walk out and I move on to my rounds, you know, three minutes later. And then I see Kathy later in the day. This conversation actually happened one day. And I say, um, oh, how's, you know, Mr. So-and-so seems fine. And and she says, no, they're not fine at all. I said, oh, they, he told me his pain was a zero. And she said, well, yeah, it is. It is a zero unless you ask him to do something. It's a zero because he's sitting still. If you ask him to move, and he's having pain and we need him to get up and move. Um, so she's just looking at a kind of a, a deeper level uh, that allows us to tailor our care uh, to more effectively manage these patients in ways they actually need. How do you manage your COVID positive patients when you're talking about goals of care or code status with loved ones over the phone? It's been nice at times because we've had these iPads available to be able to invite family members to participate. And this wasn't necessarily just with COVID patients, but within the COVID process of not having visitors. I think I've had 11 family members on one video chat discussing and showing them the patient at the bedside and that sort of thing. So having those conversations has been great because of technology, but still hard because families can't be here. But surprisingly, when I've had to have those, they've gone pretty well, despite the situation. Kathy, I want to ask you a question. What's the overlap between you, the geriatric nurse practitioner, there's geriatricians in the hospital, there's palliative care and there's hospice. Like, how do you sort out who's, who's managing what part of the patient's care? Yeah, and actually this geriatric trauma program is the only geriatric service available. And so there's not actual any other geriatricians to be consulted at this time. With palliative care, it's a, again, that's a really close communication with them on if we're overlapping on patients, trying to figure out what am I addressing at that time? If they're addressing the goals of care and shared decision-making, all of that, I'll step back and more so making sure we're doing following beers criteria closely, those sorts of pieces, making sure with the medicine management for the geriatric population specifically. And then also with hospice, I often would be the one that consults hospice to get them involved if we've had those discussions and the family does decide to go that route. So I collaborate with them. And once we do get to that point of deciding if the patient stays in-house or goes 
home will be the factor of how much more I'm involved with it, but really just being there for the family and the patient through that and having close contact and communication with hospice to make sure all the pieces are met. Is there any barriers along the way too? I was going to ask if there's any medications you wish never existed. Muscle relaxers. The side effects that they have in the geriatric population, lots of confusion I've seen with Robax and the Xanaflex, I see drop in heart rate and blood pressure. Just not a great medication. They're often on the beers criteria to avoid. Um, and oftentimes I, when I assess patients, they're not necessarily having muscle spasms per se. So um, giving them a medication that they may not need in the geriatric world is is something we always like to minimize, so. And what would you get removed? Maybe the antihistamines, but the bigger issue I have is not removing a medicine so much as, of course, we see the patients that fall and come in with head bleeds. So, so many of them come in and they're on anticoagulant for atrial fibrillation. And, you know, you take one look and think, well, goodness, your life expectancy can't be, you know, that much longer. Is this something you really should have been on up until this point? Uh, and to that point, coordinating with um, outpatient resources to set up uh, to anticipate the chronic management of chronic medical conditions post-injury is a whole opportunity for growth and improvement that we've talked a lot about, but just don't really have capacity to delve into that now. And I know Kathy spends a lot of time coordinating with PCPs to try to figure this kind of thing out. But I think that's the biggest, you know, the biggest headache is is figuring out all the anticoagulants for my my end. Yeah, I would agree too. It is, it's a lot of work, but I feel it's a priority in geriatrics for sure to sort that piece out. So when you decided to start a program, what did you do first? Well, I started really just understanding what geriatrics is, doing a lot of research. In my doctorate program, I actually focused on geriatric trauma with rib fractures. Everything I did was just getting myself surrounded by geriatrics. Every project that I did in my process improvement role, I just really focused on geriatrics, geriatric trauma activations, rib fractures, all of that. And then also looking at what does a program look like? How could it be successful? Putting the research, the literature together to really understand how to, and it had also the biggest thing that was really helpful is having a lot of support from the higher ups and the providers that surrounded me. And I want you to touch on that a little bit. The two of you came together, had this idea, a geriatric trauma program. It's a passion for both of you. How do you convince the C-suite this is a worthwhile endeavor? Don't stop bugging them. Yeah. This, we'll talk more about this later. This is a particularly difficult question to answer, I think, with geriatrics. There was about a year lag time of prep work to get the initial hiring of Kathy's role approved to lay the groundwork for what is our needs assessment kind of show? How is Kathy going to fit in? Where is she going to fit into the organizational chart? Uh, how is she going to benefit the patients? What kind of data are we going to track? What are we expecting to show? And it took, I mean, every organization is different, both in terms of needs and resources and also organizational risk and all kinds of other things that influence that. But it really took a lot of time and uh, laying of groundwork to even make the case that this is something that was helpful and needed because it's not necessarily something that is intuitive uh, on its face that, that you will absolutely benefit from. It is frankly hard to show. It's hard to move the metrics. There aren't great lagging or leading metrics for geriatric trauma care that are across the board can be beneficial. So you have to know what's going on in your hospital to know 
where to even start with this kind of uh, process and where it might be beneficial. How old is your program? Just um, a little over a year old. Okay, it's mm -hmm. relatively new. So did you use TQIP data or anything to try to convince people or did you have that available to you as a bargaining tool? Data from our registry and then the Michigan Trauma Quality Improvement data. Yeah, MTQIP is very, very robust. Upfront, it's important to identify key stakeholders for a multidisciplinary steering committee. That would include people from geriatrics, trauma surgery, orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery, whether they're physicians or APPs, care management, social work, physical therapy, occupational therapy, respiratory therapy, speech therapy, neuropsychology. Uh, and that's just looking at the inpatient side. You could look at the outpatient side as well if you wanted this to be a community focus. That's been a pretty key uh, resource to figure out opportunities for improvement and next steps as we've tried to build the program. Were there any established programs that you consulted with when initiating your program? Yes, and we have to say a big thank you to Dr. Rajesh Gandhi and Elizabeth Smith, nurse practitioner, uh, who work at JPS um, Health System in Fort Worth, Texas. They hosted us for a visit. We went down for a couple of days and got to see their program which is a very mature, impressive system. They have, I think, something like 15 APPs uh, in-house who run the service around the clock. We already at that point had done our kind of year groundwork. Kathy was already about to be hired into her role. And we were really looking at, okay, how do we actually set this up? What do we actually do on a day-to-day -day basis? What kind of metrics have they uh, really had success impacting? And how do we build our actual protocols and practices for our patients? I feel like that was a very instrumental visit to to really make sure we were heading in the direct the correct direction with our program and um, gave us a lot of solid input that I think has truly helped me along the way in this role too. So thank you. How did you guys actually get this going? How did you decide and how did you get the motivation and the buy-in just to do it? Your question about buy-in, Kathy might have a little more insight. A lot of that process happened in above my pay grade offices. The argument to, to really investigate this role was really driven by our trauma medical director and our program director as well. And uh, they um, uh, saw the need for it. We talked a little bit earlier about reasons to have this uh, kind of program. Another good one is that uh, the American College of Surgeons have given indications that they're going to start to look at having specific geriatric focuses, geriatric specific assessment and intervention protocols is going to be part of what they look at for future verification uh, assessments uh, as well. So it partly in light of that and partly just seeing the need of the amount of time that has to be spent, they were able to make this successful argument to the administration that it was worth investing in in FTE uh, or inpatient geriatric coverage. And I don't, I'm afraid I don't really have any more of the story than that. I don't, Kathy, I don't know if you have uh, more backstory than that. Yeah, I think that sums it up pretty well. And I also, with my doctorate, really focused on just the geriatric with isolated rib fractures and some of the outcomes we saw from that, we knew that we needed to have some improvement. And so I think that kind of helped to having that data to say, we really need some focus for this patient population helped. Yeah, that is true. We did have a test data set that showed the intervention in that population was beneficial, uh, which was all Kathy's work. So do you see patients in any area of the hospital, including the ICU? And do you ever have any overlap there with the critical care team? 
Yeah, I do see patients in the ICU, especially like the rib fracture population, and then various units depending. Usually we have them on our orthotrauma unit, but sometimes go overflow elsewhere. The ICU is usually pretty happy to have me on board. Obviously, they're doing a lot of the intensive medical management, but I do a lot of like, again, the shared decision-making, code status, goals of care sorts of things that are very pertinent in that stage of care. If you had to point anyone in direction of some literature to kind of support their argument for why they should have a geriatric trauma program, are there any key papers you would recommend? It's called the uh, American College of Surgeons Trauma Quality Improvement Program Geriatric Trauma Management Guidelines. It's a nice document that really looks at why this matters and then the kinds of factors that you need to look at. Um, In setting up a program, it's got a good appendix that includes Fears criteria and decision-making capacity and some elder specific issues like elder abuse and substance abuse that you need to really be to be thinking about. Um, that The number one that I would uh, put on the list of things to look at. Um, Kathy, do you have any, any others that you would refer people to? No, I agree. I think that I slept with that document. I felt like by my pillow for a long time. So it was a, a great piece of information along the way to really guide and know what to do and move how to move forward. Tell me, what kind of challenges did you run into when starting the program? For me as the nurse practitioner on that part, any challenges too, just because also as a new nurse practitioner. So really trying to learn the role and the program and trying to morph that together. I feel like overall it's gone it's been pretty smooth. I've had some really great guidance from Dr. Gayad and Dr. Butcher, the geriatrician, because I always wanted to take more, do more. And they really just always held me back when the criteria that we were using and slowly trying to move forward to not take on too much. So I feel like overall it it has gone pretty smoothly. I think from a program building standpoint, the challenges have been first knowing what your focus is, knowing what your goal goals will be, and then coordinating with the existing resources. So uh, Kathy is the first inpatient presence of geriatrics in our health system. We already had palliative care. We had hospitalists. We have hospice care. And those were already, you know, integrating with our current care processes. So our patients' needs were, at least on paper, met in some way. So we had to figure out both ahead of time and then as we went along, well, how is, how is geriatric trauma going to fit into this into this world and how are we going to keep these relationships beneficial for everybody and and not cause any friction or conflict. There is a lot more work to do than we possibly can do right now. So keeping our focus limited has been a challenge, as Kathy mentioned, and then finding metrics that reflect the benefit. We all see the benefit of Kathy's work, but it's been actually relatively difficult to show. For example, we'd love to say we have lower length of stay and patients are more likely to be discharged home and uh, we're improving clearly on paper things. But I remember one patient in particular we had where Kathy and I both happened to be on service as a, a lady who was in her, I think, lower 80s and had had a ground level fall as most of our admissions do and had uh, had a cervical spine fracture. And on paper, she was ready to go home and Kathy and I both rounded on her and said, she's not we can't put our finger on it, but she's just not quite right. And we're afraid that she would leave and bounce back with just kind of dwindling in the subacute rehab center. And we ended up prolonging her stay by a day or two, just until we really sat down with physical therapy and occupational therapy and said, Hey, are are we really comfortable with her going yet? And we put our heads all together. We all kind of were in agreement that no, 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 we, she really needs another day or two here, but it was something that that it was, it was hard to really quantify or point to anything in the chart that would show that clearly. So, you know, on paper, that's a longer length of 
stay. But in that one case, I'm confident that that was a better pathway for that patient. So it's been a real challenge from a program building standpoint. Okay, hospital system, or from a research standpoint, how do I show benefit that we know is clearly there? We know that people are coming out of the woodwork saying, oh, Kathy, can you please see this patient? Can you see our patients? You know, can you see our hip fracture admissions, please? Because as surgeons, we don't, you know, we don't want to spend an hour in a room. And even if I did spend an hour in a room, I wouldn't be near as qualified or effective doing the kinds of assessments that Kathy is doing. She really brings a different skill set to the table, but we just don't, we don't have the capacity to, to do all of those things. So figuring out where we can have kind of a low hanging fruit to make a positive impact up front and not being able to show a lot of on paper benefit. That's been the biggest challenge to building a, a case for continuing to expand the program. You keep mentioning the metrics that you're striving for. Could you go into a little bit more detail about what are some of the things you chose to collect when you decided to start up a program? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't have the entire list in front of me, but the, you know, the vision was I wanted to be able to paint a picture of who exactly are we taking care of? Who are they? How old are they? How are they getting injured? What injuries do they have? How long are they staying? How long are they in the ICU? Where do they go when they leave the hospital? What kind of complications do they have while they're in the hospital? What kind of comorbidities do they come with? How much are we impacting their prescription medications between admission and discharge reconciliation? What kinds of volumes of anticoagulant reversal are we having to, to give triage rates over triage, under triage, and then to be able to look for associations with those things and look for opportunities to improve the care that we're providing. We've been tracking those metrics for a little over a year now. And we are just now a year in starting to see opportunities where we say, okay, for example, our over and under triage rates for our entire health system are, I think, three to 5%, something like that. They're in a good range, but our geriatric trauma program over and under triage rates are like 30%. I mean, they're way, way, way higher because they're so much harder, especially the over triage, because we have built activation criteria that are specific to the geriatric trauma program, and they're built to be more sensitive so that we don't miss these patients. So we over triage a whole lot. We have trauma response for patients that don't necessarily need them in hindsight, which creates a different opportunity to say, okay, well, how do we now narrow this down? How do we figure out which of these patients really do benefit from, from the response now that we're not having as many people slip through the cracks? Uh, so that's a high level overview of the kind of metrics we are looking at. We are also actually coordinating with a local insurer because our data stops at discharge and we want, really want to look at longitudinal data, readmissions, um, one-year mortality rates, and those are awfully hard to do uh, with our local resources, just with the program that we have. So we're looking for all alternative ways to get the data that we need to really figure out holistically what happens to these patients and where can we find opportunities to improve their, their long-term uh, outcome. Is there any outpatient follow-up specifically within the program? Like, Do they follow up with the geriatricians or the regular trauma office afterwards or just their primary care doctor? Typically just their primary care doctor and whatever specialty services they may have had involved, but we do have some resources in the geriatric outpatient world that I've connected them with if the patient qualifies for that, to have that continued connection. One of the things we look at in our metrics is uh, incidental findings. Uh, and I think something like 35 or 40% of our patients Geriatric patients have incidental findings that we then have to catalog and discuss with them and arrange for follow-up. And that's all that's all a good thing as well. But it's another interesting thing that I don't know what that number is in the non-geriatric population, but I assume it's higher in the geriatric population. 
if resources were not an issue, what would you like the future to look like? A handful of APPs working with me, <laughs> covering the ortho hips, the burns, the total ICU for geriatric patients would be ideal. Yeah, I, I think that the one of the things that I love about what Kathy is doing and the geriatrics division in our program here is that the center of their work is based around a shared decision-making model. The paradigm for the assessment is upfront to sit down with patient and families and figure out, well, what, are, what really are your goals and what really can we do to help you? Because I think we're all just a little bit quick, not that we don't go through our informed consent process, we do, but sometimes you have to let it breathe a little bit to allow people to really have an understanding of what they're getting into. So I think that establishing an upfront shared decision-making model for really every patient that we touch would be great on all of, all kinds of levels. It might change what care we actually provide, but I think more than that, it would align expectations for providers and for patients and families about what reasonable expectations and goals are. And I think that really could impact a lot of what we think about, what we talk about, and how we engage here. For example, one of the things we're trying to do, we're setting up a process where we have, let's say patients come into the emergency room that we think have a terminal diagnosis. Rather than bringing them to the hospital, we're trying to arrange for a home hospice from the emergency room. Turns out that that's a complex process uh, that involves social work and a few other parties who aren't necessarily available around the clock. So we end up admitting these patients to the hospital service, which for some of them means they can't go home. Uh, we know that most people would prefer to, to die at home and about 20% of this people in this country end up dying in the hospital. We also know that care costs less when, when people die at home than when they die in the hospital. And so those are opportunities for improved satisfaction and improved cost. that if we have a chance to kind of assess all those things up front and then build a process around it, we, we, we think we really can, can do some great things that are better quality at lower cost. But to your question, we don't have the resources to do all that uh, up front. As Kathy said, I think having a, a full stable of APPs to be able to cover all of our trauma admissions, not just trauma service, but the patients that are currently being admitted to orthopedics or hospitalists, or even expanding outside that, because we're focused on trauma, but again, geriatrics is not a trauma specific entity. So really the kinds of things we're looking at, like admission and discharge medicine, reconciliation, connecting those processes with outpatient care needs, uh, with, uh, you know, how does a patient's Plavix get managed after they have a fall in the head bleed. These are things that really are system system problems. The geriatric trauma program is a great laboratory to figure out how to really solve those problems and then roll them out to other areas of the hospital as well. Um, right now, we know that the geriatric population is expanding and has been for years and will continue to do so. I think it's projected to grow another 30% in the next decade. Right now, a quarter of Medicare dollars are spent in the last year of life, and 40% of that's in the last 30 days. And we spend $4 trillion, that's a trillion with a T, dollars per year on healthcare in this country. So that's a lot of money uh, and a lot of time and resources that are being directed into this population, and it's going to continue to grow. The leading reason for admission to trauma centers is now ground level falls uh, and has been for several years. These patients already everywhere are dominating our trauma services and it's going to get uh, even more so to be the case, particularly as automobile makers have had really phenomenal success with improving automobile safety. If we start seeing things like self-driving cars 
I mean, they may there may realistically be a day when the geriatric trauma service is the trauma service and the penetrating trauma that we see in the motor vehicle collisions really are a minority of what we spend our time doing. And quite frankly, you know, part of why I'm attracted to it from a process standpoint, if you tailor your process to the most vulnerable patients, then you can flex your system resources to provide appropriate care for all patients, whether they're frail or not, whether they're geriatric or not. Um, and if you look at end of life care, a lot of these patients, unfortunately, a significant number, like 33% or 40% will end up having readmission and more and even death a year following these ground level falls with rib fractures or head injuries or spine injuries. And if we know that this is a trigger to start looking at some of those issues, well, how much better can we be at dealing with all of those end of life situations, setting up expectations, getting people and families ready for that process? Not that we don't stop trying, but if we see it coming, I think we can handle it a lot better. As I have said a few times, I think it's a growth market. I think the next couple of decades, we're going to be doing a lot more of this. So now is a great time to get really good at it. I agree. I agree. And my thing is always too, when I'm taking care of patients, I'm thinking about discharge on day one, because there's a lot of planning that goes in to these complex patients. We don't want to delay discharge because it's something we could have done earlier in the in the hospitalization. Well, thank you so much for your participation. I think we've all learned a lot today and look forward to the future of geriatric trauma. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the EAST website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the EAST.